The following audio is from Grace Fellowship of Westerville. To learn more about our church, please visit our website at www.gracefcwesterville.org. Amen. Well, if you'll turn to Philippians chapter 1, you know, some passages of the Bible have to be understood with emotions as well as the mind. To understand them fully, you must put yourself in the shoes of the Bible character. I mean, can we really understand that passage in Genesis that talks about Abraham being willing to sacrifice his son if we don't allow ourselves to feel that? Or if we don't know what it's like to have lost a son? It's impossible without feelings. And moreover, it is only on that basis that we can understand fully what it was like for God to give his son. You know, God created us in his image. And creating us in his image, we feel, we hurt, we have joy. And for God to turn his back on his son because he loved us. You need to allow yourself to feel and sense what he was going through. You know, it requires a similar sympathy with the Apostle Paul to understand our text this morning. Now, you put yourself in the shoes of the Philippian Christians for a few minutes. It had been probably four years since they had seen Paul. They had heard rumors of things that were happening to him, but they didn't really know everything that was going on. And then word finally came about their church member, Aphrodite, who had been sick. And those who brought the message brought as much as they knew about Paul. But now, some time had elapsed. The Christians would be asking serious questions. Was Paul still in chains? Perhaps he was sick. Had he already come to trial? Perhaps he had already been martyred for his faith in Jesus Christ. The Philippians had no way of knowing. But then, at last, news arrived from Rome, and with it, a handwritten letter from Paul. And you can imagine what they were thinking about when they got to our passage this morning. Philippians 1, verses 12 to 14. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has come that my imprisonment, or excuse me, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So, here's some news. Many of the rumors they had heard were actually true. Many unfortunate things had happened to Paul. He was still in chains. The future was still uncertain. Yet, something else was also true. These things have really served to the advancement of the gospel. And for that, Paul is rejoicing. And then in one glorious sentence, Paul shifts the legitimate interest of the Philippians in himself to God. 
to God's purposes. Now, this is where you really begin to understand something about Paul. It was not about him. It's all about God and for God. And this is how Paul navigated life. So this brings us to think that there's a, a, a reality here that's sometimes difficult for us. Our plans are sometimes not God's plans. We must, must remember first that the things that had happened to Paul were quite different from the things Paul had planned for himself. I mean, think about this. Paul had a great ministry to the Gentiles. And for years, he had carried the gospel throughout various parts of the region. And somewhere along the line, he conceived a plan to take the gospel to the far west, to Spain, after returning to Jerusalem and stopping for a visit in Rome. All these solid, great plans that would bring glory to God. I mean, who could ask for a better missionary and a better plan? These plans were not fulfilled. Instead, he found himself a prisoner on trial for his life. In fact, at the time of writing the Philippians, he didn't know if he'd ever be free again. So let's follow for a minute what had happened to Paul. Because it begins in Acts chapter 21, when Paul set foot in Jerusalem. By the way, forewarned by the Holy Spirit that bonds and imprisonment awaited him. An entirely false accusation was leveled against him by his own people. Acts 21, verse 28, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. And moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled the holy place. A little bit of truth distorted to bring a charge against Paul. He was nearly lynched by an angry bomb and would have been whipped if, uh, if he had not been able to claim citizenship of Rome. The whole case against him was a mockery of justice because all rights were on his side. He couldn't even secure a hearing. He was made the subject of unjust, provoked insults. In fact, in Acts, in fact, in Acts chapter 23, verse 2, we read, and the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Now just think about that. He's minding his own business, living for Christ, an incredible missionary. And he gets dragged in, falsely accused, stories made up about him. Then bystanders are told to smack him on the mouth. Even in his suffering. They were not over. What was going on in Rome was not over. There came a time, a prolonged time at sea in Acts chapter 27, where his life hung seemingly by a thread, not only because of the elements, because of, but because of scared soldiers. Acts 27 verse 42, the soldiers' plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. And when Paul entered Rome, he came in chains in the company of the condemned, and destined to drag out for at least two years under arrest, awaiting an uncertain decision from an old king. 
But in spite of all this, still in prison, still in chains, still uncertain, he looks back and he asserts, what happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Are you kidding me? I mean, who thinks that way? Who has that mindset? Now, I stated earlier that we have to put ourselves in the place of Bible characters. But how do we put ourselves in the position of Paul? I think of it. All the frustration, all the delay, all the physical suffering, yet this is overshadowed by the fact that it has served to spread the gospel. Which, if you think about it, was Paul's goal in the first place. And he was getting what he had always lived to do. Have you ever experienced anything like this in your own Christian life? You see, not all suffering is for this purpose. There are different kinds of suffering, and God has different purposes in in, uh, permitting suffering to come upon us. Sometimes suffering is corrective. It's intended to get us off the line we're on and get us back on the right track. This is what uh, Solomon was talking about in Proverbs 3, beginning in verse 11. He said, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him who he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. You know, I learned that truth at a very young age. I think I was probably eight or nine years old. I'd been sent to my room for a crime I don't remember. But I was in my room, and I was kneeling at the window of my second floor bedroom, uh, talking out there to my friends that were trying to get me to come out and play. And I said, I couldn't. I'm stuck in the room. Well, ask your mother. She'll let you out. It's been long enough. So I went to the door and I yelled down, Ma, can I come out now? And I don't know exactly what she said, but she said words to the effect, No, not until you learn to respect your mother and be obedient. Well, I went back to the window and I yelled out, Daddy, old battle axe won't let me come out. And I shed some great superlatives about my mother. Have you ever suddenly noticed you're not alone? And you have this funny feeling? I turned around, and there was my dad standing in the doorway. He'd heard it all. Now, my dad, to this day, he's, of course, he's passed long ago, but to this day is one of the most physically powerful men I've ever known. But he was the most loving and compassionate father. And several minutes later, trying to get comfortable because I couldn't sit right, couldn't lay right, I got up and I moved and I looked down the hall and I could see my dad in the doorway with tears on his cheeks. And I realized he hated to punish me. But he knew he had to do it. And at eight or nine years old, whatever I was, I knew right then 
how much my father loved me. And this is what the passage is talking about. The corrective trials which mold us and bring us back on the path that God wants for us. Some suffering is to awaken us to the needs and feelings of other people. And some of it is instructive. It's intended to mold us into the image of Christ, which is what we seem to hit on every week. And who can forget 1 Peter Chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, where Peter said, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perisheth, though it is tested by fire, may be found to the result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You see, the trials, if necessary, are not going to be held back. Because when they're tested, it tests the genuineness of your faith, which Peter says is far more important than gold. And why is that so? So that you may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. When Christ comes, you can stand boldly before him, having been refined like pure gold. Now, Paul's suffering was neither corrective or instructive. It was simply a suffering permitted by God so that the gospel might be spread. You see, a surrendered child of God is a tool in the hands of a loving God. And sometimes we suffer so others can see Christ. Wow. So, how did the gospel spread? Well, first, Paul was able to bear a remarkable witness to the Praetorian Guard. Now, in the King James Version of the Bible, the key verse here is Philippians 1.13. So that my bonds in Christ are manifest in all the palace and in all other places. Unfortunately, the King James translators did not possess all of the information that we have today. And many of the documents, in fact, all of the documents that have been found as a result, the word palace or building is never used. It's the word praetorium, which the ancient translators uh, thought it referred to building, but which we now know it referred to people, actually to the Roman praetorian guard. So in all of them, it refers to people, not a building. And this, this guard was the official bodyguard of the emperor, which took charge of the imperial prisoners. Therefore, Paul's witness was to the imperial guard. And if you can just picture this for a minute. Paul is imprisoned in Rome, chained to Roman guard. And ever since he's been arrested in Jerusalem, he's been chained to the Praetorian guards, except for the time when they were aboard ship. He's now in the care of hand-picked troops that guard the emperor. And what did Paul do? Well, he might have complained He might have said, this is unjust, Roman law is too slow, 
And the guy at the end of this chain represents all of Rome, and I can't stand the sight of him. But that wasn't Paul, was it? For Paul, the soldier at the end of the chain represented someone Christ died for. And Paul bore witness not only to this soldier, but also to the one who replaced him for the second watch, and the third watch, and the fourth watch, day in, day out, until he probably touched virtually the whole Praetorian Guard. I mean, think how Paul must have lived to have this effect upon these rough Roman soldiers. Here was a man who had every right to be thinking about himself. But instead, he spoke of Christ. And even in prison, and the soldiers listened. (laughs) How could they not? They were chained to Paul. And every chance Paul had, he talked of Christ. And they were going to listen. So, what are you chained to this morning? Are you chained to a, a desk at work? You may be tied to home, especially when the children are small and young and need constant care. You may be tied to a sickbed in and out of health issues. These should not be a cause for discouragement. Your circumstances are given by God and can and will be used by Him. You can bear a witness wherever you are and understand that God is in all those details. I mean, look at again at, at Philippians 1.12. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Now, how does somebody have that mindset? You may be sitting here this morning And maybe you're in a trial, and the last thing you're thinking about is serving God. All you're thinking about is either how do I get out of it? How do I deal with it? How do I change their mind? What do I do? Well, we don't need to look any farther than Romans 12.1 to understand what Paul gives us the answer. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers... By the mercies of God. Let me stop there for a minute. If you're here and you've accepted Christ, you have been grafted into the family of God. Your eternity is secure. The Bible says that we have been adopted. And therefore, we are joint heirs with Jesus Christ. Everything, everything that the Father has given Christ is yours. Think about that. So when Paul says, by the mercies of God, he's saying, on the basis of everything that has been given to you, present your body a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Now, notice that when he says, present your body as a living sacrifice, here's what it boils down to. You must consciously decide that God will have all of you. You must consciously decide that God will have all of you. 
It's a constant choice you must make, and you must make it daily. There are two things involved here. Your innermost selves, who does the offering, and the body that's offered. Clearly, we must first belong to God ourselves before anything can be offered to Him. This means that the kind of life the Bible advocates is impossible for a non-Christian. It's impossible for anyone who has failed to come to God solely on the merits of Christ and His atoning death on Calvary. Nothing in the unsaved person can satisfy God to the slightest degree. All acts of human sacrifice apart from Christ. All acts of self-denial apart from Christ. All acts of penance apart from Christ. All these are acts of the human righteousness. And it's only after a person has come to Christ and irrevocably that God moves him to make that sacrifice of his body that we can now honor and glorify Jesus Christ. Have you made that first and great commitment? If not, you need to deal with that before you can go any farther. And then, too, we must surrender our bodies to the Lord to be used as he determines. Merely to see this truth is not sufficient. You must also practice yielding your body to Christ. This means that every morning you wake up, he should be on your lips. While you're having your breakfast, you should be thinking about Christ and what can be done today to bring glory to him. It ought to be a part of our hearts and our desires. You must ask him to take control of your eyes and tongues that they might be given to his service and not to your own. And moreover, you must do so every moment of the day when it comes to your mind. If you're like me, it doesn't take much to knock you off. I'm sure we would all agree. But when you have decided in your heart that God will have all of you, you will be amazed at how much that comes into your mind and heart and how often you'll pray during the day and ask God to guide and lead you every step of the way. In such a way, Jesus Christ will truly be magnified in you. And you will be able to echo the words of the Apostle Paul when he said, I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. And the more you understand how God is working in your life, the easier it is to give up more and more and more. And just imagine, I've said this before, but just imagine when your head hits the pillow at night and you can say, God, this day was yours. I walked with you. That is the joyous peace that passes all understanding. There is also another way in which Paul's sufferings served to advance the gospel, and it was his, our effect on others. Look at verse 14. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. 
Christians moved from bearing, uh, moved from fear to boldness as a result of Paul's imprisonment. I mean, here's this guy gone through so much suffering. Now he's in prison, chained to Roman guards, yet he's witnessing and writing and praising God. These people saw that witness and thought, man, if God is doing it in his life, how much more can I do who are free? Has your life had that effect on other Christians? You know, how you navigate trials of life has a profound effect on those around you. Moms and dads, how you navigate the trials of life has a profound effect on your children. Do others see God's working in your life? There's one more thing here to be said. If if these things are to be true in your life, you must let suffering draw you closer to the Lord. You know, it is quite possible to do the opposite. It can draw you away if you're not careful or if you regard yourself higher than what God is trying to do in your life. And if you're honest with yourself, when a trial comes, what's your first reaction? Is it anger? Is it bitterness? Is it frustration? Or are you, like Paul, able to say, you know, God, you must really be doing something in my life. But you've got my body, and I'm not taking it back. You do what you want to do, God. And I think there's also another thing here that happened because of Paul's imprisonment that's not mentioned here, and nobody talks about it. But think... In prison, he wrote Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon, the prison epistles. If he was out on the road traveling all the time, he may not have had time to get that done. So even behind bars, he's affecting the world and still is today. You and I can't see what God is doing in the midst of a trial. But I guarantee you, There will come a day when you will know. There will come a day when you will go, oh, I get it. And you may not know till you get to glory. But God is working. And thankfully, we have another example that's very important for us here. And that's Job. Job trusted God even in the midst of great suffering. And in suffering, he drew closer to God. All that Job had was taken from him. His oxen, his donkeys were stolen. His sheep were destroyed by lightning. Robbers and raiders made off with his camels. And he lost all his kids in a moment. Have you ever wanted to curse God? Have you ever been mad at God? I have. I've had some knockdown dragouts with God. I've had some shouting prayers. Have you? But Job drew closer to God. 
Satan stepped back waiting for Job to curse God. And instead, Job received evil with a quiet heart. And he said in Job 121, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gives, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He's just lost everything. And he says, blessed be the name of the Lord. He has this discussion with his wife. And you know Job's sweet wife. Just curse God and die. Well, you know, we, we, we come down on his wife, but I get her. I get what she's saying. Can we put an end to these trials? How do we stop them? Curse God, die, get it over. I don't want to be here anymore. But Job says in chapter 2, verse 10, Shall we receive good from God, and shall we not receive evil? Let me tell you something. Job's trials, you may want to hear this. Job's trials came from God. Satan did it. But God removed the hedge and let Satan take everything Job had. You don't hear that preached very often today, do you? Because God wants you rich and happy and healthy. How could God do that to Job? How could he do this? Well, because he was going to bring it for his glory. And ultimately, Job's glory. Job began to wear down. He never cursed God. But he began to grow weary and fearful. Job says in chapter 30, verse 26, But when I hoped for good, evil came. And when I wanted for light, darkness came. Does that sound familiar? God, God, well, can't you just get me out of this? Darkness. God, I, I want good. Evil. This flies in the face of everything I've been thinking about God. God is love. He's good. He's wonderful. Now, God is just and pure and perfect. And so finally, God opens up. And chapter 38 through 41, God tells him like it is. Job, did you create the heavens and the earth? Did you put the sun in the sky? And he goes on through this whole litany of things for, for all these chapters. And Job finally gets it. And in chapter 42, Job says, beginning in verse 2, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel with knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I didn't know. Hear, and I will speak. I will question you, and you make it known to me. 
I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I despise myself and I repent in dust and ashes. I want to point out something to you here that I think is missed all the time. Verse 5 says, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear. You see, Job knew God. He believed in God. We know that through the scriptures because when he was in the pinch, he gave it all to God. He gave God glory. He never, never cursed God. He knew God, but he knew God by hearing. Every one of you in this room knows God by hearing. You've heard the word. You've accepted Christ. You may be living a a great life for Christ, but it's all by hearing. But now get this. Verse 5. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. It was only through the trials that he saw God. Because he saw God working in his life. Through the trials and the suffering, he saw the hand of God. And I'm telling you this morning, you and I will never fully know God till we see him in the trials. I have known God since 17 years old. But I've never seen him like I have the last five years. God will give you the trials to look to him and watch him work in your heart. And see the impact he has on everyone around you because you see God. Job saw God. And he repented in dust and ashes. And it was after this that God blessed him double of everything he had. Don't despise what God is doing in your heart and life. No matter what it is. Because when you commit your life and heart to him, he will work what he has planned to work in you. Job says in the book that it came from God. And your trials, though confusing, though hard to track, though maybe understandable at the time, are allowed by God. And he is working a far more exceeding weight of glory than you can ever imagine. But when you learn to give him your life, commit it to him, 
you are going to see amazing things. Trials open our eyes to the goodness of God. Let me say that again. Trials and suffering open our eyes to the goodness of God. You had never seen it apart from what God is doing in your life. If you have allowed suffering to bring you closer to God, you are well on your way to becoming a great blessing to God and to the people around you. Your testimony can be extraordinary if you just let God do what he's doing and seek his will every step of the way. As the men come to prepare for communion, I'd like you to just think about where you are right now. Maybe you have no trials. Maybe life is good. Easy breezy. I hope so. And maybe it's tough right now. Would you ask the Lord to reveal himself in what you're doing and allow God to take you where he wants you to go for his glory? Let's pray. Father, Hear the hearts now of your people. Hear the pleas of the wayward souls, the struggling hearts, the fearful. Draw them close to you now, Lord, and speak what you want us to hear in Christ's name. Father, as we partake now, we, <clears throat> we just ask 
that you would continue to work in our hearts. We're so thankful for the reality of what you've done by giving your life, your broken body, your shed blood, that all who accept that free gift might have eternal life. I pray now, Lord, as we partake, that we would be reminded of this and that through this we would worship you in our remembrance. In Christ's name I ask. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he gave thanks, he broke it and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do in remembrance of me.
In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And as our tradition here, we join hands throughout the auditorium and we'll all sing a verse. Whatever it is. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we're no longer blind, that the words, the truth of your word has filled our hearts, and we thank and praise you for that amazing grace. Go with us now, Lord. Give us the peace. Give us the endurance to give everything to you, that you might be glorified. And all God's people said, amen. God bless. Thanks, ma'am.